We are, of course, reaching the culmination of the French Revolution, the Reign of Terror. The snaky, satanic fire hose of blood that bit and spewed human essence all over the political and social landscape. But before we get to the gory stuff, and there is a lot, I want to talk about power. This is something that I've really been meditating on, of course, as I have been doing this French Revolution presentation. Wars and conflicts have erupted across the world. And the problem is power. How do we explain this problem of power? Well, I will explain it to you. Are you obeying a person or are you obeying objective rules? Are you doing what your thesis advisor tells you to do or are you learning the objective rules of your trade? If you're a science student, you're a physics student, and your physics professor says, your thesis advisor says, here's how you do science. You do X, Y, Z, A, B, C. Okay, are you obeying him as a person or are you following good rules of science? Is he just a messenger or is he telling you what to do? When your doctor says you need to lose weight and exercise, do you obey him? Or is he simply telling you the rules of health that you need to follow because he wants you to stay in good health? Now, I will tell you this, this is my philosophy is the same as peace. Philosophy and peace are one and the same. I mean, rational philosophy, which is really the only philosophy that is everything else is superstition. Rational empirical philosophy is the same as peace. If you don't have good reasons for what you're telling people to do, or if your principle is based upon you should obey me, it's a universal principle that you should obey me. Morality is you obeying me. Ethics is me telling you what to do and you damn well doing it. Objective reason, morality, universality is you obeying me. Well, obviously we know the flaw in that from UPB and just plain old common sense, which is if it's, if it's universally good for me to obey you, then why can't it be reversed? Why is it not equally good for you to obey me? If you get to tell me what to do and it's some sort of universal good that I obey you, then why isn't it a universal good that you obey me? Now, hiding this basic reality, which all children process and understand, hiding this basic reality is what governments are for, nobility is for, Royalty is for, the caste system is for, all of this nonsense that people make up to say, well, you should obey me, but I should never obey you. We're both human beings. You should obey me, but I should never obey you. For you to obey me is moral. For me to obey you is treason, insurrection, the violent overthrow of all that is good and noble and wonderful, right? If you don't have good reasons as to why people should listen to you, should do what you say, then your only recourse is violence. Your only recourse is violence. Central planners say, we should control the means of production. We should control prices. We should control money creation. We should control which goods go where at what rate and what speed. We must exercise control over property. All right. Human beings should exercise control over property. So why would the central planners get to do it and not anyone else? Magic. <laughs> Superstition, collectivism, the good of society, whatever foggy, vitriolic, veined nonsense they can stuff this contradiction in, they're willing to do it. Power works in two ways. In the same way that good pickpockets learn 
work in two ways. One, someone bumps into you. Two, someone else takes your money. While you're distracted by being bumped into, someone takes your wallet or whatever it is, right? So a concept is created that cannot speak for itself, but which has ultimate authority. God, the country, the common good, the good of society, the world spirits, the race, the religion, whatever it is. Some entity that is infallible is created that cannot speak for itself, and then its representatives are merely speaking for that incomprehensible entity and ordering you to obey, but you can't question it because it's not rational. This is why I have always strenuously pushed back from the very beginning of the show, and of course even before I was a public figure at the Cult of Personality. I don't want people to think that much about me. I don't want you to think about what I should say or what I'm telling you to do, because I don't tell you to do anything. You have to think for yourself. And it, it's so powerful because it's childhood, and we're going to get all the way, all the way deep into the French childhoods and our childhoods in the present. It all starts in childhood. Do our parents tell us to do the right thing or to obey them? Do our parents tell us to do the right thing or to obey them? Now, if your doctor is saying, do the right thing, eat well, exercise, whatever, right? then he's not uh, telling you to obey him as a person. He's just saying, I'm just the messenger. These are just the facts. Is the GPS ordering you around in some Germanic-tinged, toilet-trained-at-gunpoint scream fest? Turn the left! <laughs> Don't make me say miscalculating. Oh, you're going in a gulag. No, the GPS is not ordering you around. It's just, here's how to get where you say you want to go. Here's how to get to your destination. I'm not ordering you. I'm helping you. I'm informing you. And of course, I had this as a parent. As parents all have this, right? When your kid is very little, you say, do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. And the question, of course, that all kids have is, why? <laughs> why? Right? My daughter, like, like most kids, when we would go to the mall, she likes those little rides. You know, sometimes it's a giraffe, sometimes it's a little dragon, sometimes it's a fire engine. And you, you put the quarter in, and jug -jug 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 it rocks back and forth. And she loved that kind of stuff, as all kids do. That's why they're there. As I did. Now, can you imagine the scenario? My daughter is five years old, and this was a real scenario. My daughter's five years old, and she wants one of these rides. And I give her a quarter, and I say, put the quarter in the machine. Because I want her to learn how to do things. And all. Put the quarter in the machine. Now, I'm telling her how to get her ride, right? You sit on it, lean over, put the quarter in the machine, hold on tight, and off it goes, right? All right? Am I telling her what to do? I'm asking her to obey me. Am I forcing her to do something? No. I'm telling her how to get what she wants, how to do what she wants. Can you imagine you take your kid to the mall, they love those little rocking dragons, and you say, here's a quarter, put it in the slot, and you'll get the ride, and your kid says, don't tell me what to do. Don't order me around. I'm not ordering you around. I'm telling you how to get what you want. I'm telling you what the facts are for you to achieve what you want. And if the kid says, I'm not going to do it, it's like, well, then don't do it. I mean, you don't do it. So there's this funny thing that happens in parenting. It happens, of course, in school. <laughs> when I was a kid, you know, calculators were coming in. And so you'd bring calculators, and the teacher would ban the calculators, and they'd say, well, you're not going to have a calculator with you at all times. So, of course, I bought a calculator watch. <laughs> now, look, it's on, my, it's on my wrist. I have a calculator with me at all times. And now, of course... You have scientific calculators in everybody's pocket and cell phones, right? So, 
Last example, sorry to be repetitive. You want to cook a something really good, like a strawberry rhubarb pie. Strawberry rhubarb pie, right? And you print a recipe off, and you read the recipe. Do you say, don't tell me what to do. Don't order me what to do. I'm not going to obey you, fascist. <laughs> you tender, flaky fascist. <laughs> right. They're instructions. So when you talk to your kids, and this is going to play out in truly gruesome arterial arcs of blood ways in the last stages of the reign of terror, you go to your kids and say, uh, don't, uh, don't steal. I don't, don't take things without permission. And the kid says, why? And, you know, there's basically two answers. One is the golden rule. The other is UPB. The golden rule is, well, would you like it if someone took something from you, right? I mean, you stole some candy. Would you like it if somebody stole that candy from you? No, I wouldn't like it. And that's not bad. That's not bad. It's not a very good answer, but it's not bad. And, of course, it only generally works with people who already have empathy and good, good enough parenting to have empathy. Right. That's that, so the one answer is just the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or do not do unto others as you would have them not do unto you. The UPB, well, I guess there's a Kantian argument as well. The Kantian argument is, would you be happy with everyone stealing? Would you be willing to make you stealing a general rule? And the Kantian argument, of course, is act as if the principle of your behavior became a general rule for everyone. But, of course, there's no magic alchemy by which that occurs, right? A thief steals precisely because he knows that it's not a general rule that people steal. So he's relying upon that, right? Like a scavenger doesn't hunt his own prey. Now, of course, if you were to say to the scavenger, would you be content if nobody hunted their own prey? It's like, well, no, but they do hunt their own prey, and I'm happy with leftovers, so that's fine. That's fine. There were times when I worked in restaurants where I was so hungry that I would finish people's food. Not proud of it. Now, if there's a general principle, well, if nobody made food and nobody bought food, you wouldn't have anything to eat. Yeah, but I, people do make food and buy food. Right? So I wasn't just hungry. Sometimes I was just greedy, to be fair. I don't want the uh, high shrieking violins to be playing at too tinnitus a pitch. So if your kid takes, then you say, okay, let's talk about taking, taking stuff without permission. Can everyone do that? Like, not even do you want to, or would it be nice, or how would you feel, or what if the principle of your action became a general principle for everyone to follow, but can everyone steal, right? And you put one piece of candy between the two and say, let's both steal at the same time. And you end up wrestling back and forth and digging the candy out and <laughs> tickling a little for it. It's fun, right? It's funny. We can't, we can't all steal. We can't steal. And then you hold the candy out and you say, I want you to take it from me without my permission. I want you to take the candy from me against my wishes. And the kid will stare at you, right? What? <laughs> I want you to take this candy. I want you to take my candy, but without my permission. And the kid, what will the kid say? I can't take it without your permission. You just gave me permission, and then you say, take it without my permission. So I can't want you to steal. So stealing can never be universally preferable behavior. You can steal. But it can never be justified, ever, as universally preferable behavior. Because if I want you to steal from me, you're not stealing from me. Now, stealing can never be universally preferable behavior. It can never be good. It can never be good. Now, you can say, I'm going to be bad, and that's, you know, whatever, but just don't lie to yourself about it, right? Say, well, I'm going to rely on other people 
having respect for property rights and I'm going to steal. And that's, you know, you can do that, but you can't ever justify it. And it's a funny thing because human beings have such an inevitable tendency to justify things that just nips the behavior in the bud. So that's a UPB. So when you were explaining to your little kid why they shouldn't steal, why they shouldn't hit, right, or bite, or whatever they're doing, right, you can explain it. You can explain it. And there's lots of practical consequences. If you steal from people, will they want to hang around you? Will people with a lot of property, people who are kind of wealthy, who might even have swimming pools, will they want you to hang around if you're stealing from everyone? Nope. Would you want to hang around with a kid who stole with you? So you're just going to end up with kind of crappy people. Around. Like there's lots of, lots of theoretical and practical and emotional, lots of sort of arguments about it. I mean, obviously for me, UPB is a clincher, but because UPB doesn't rely on emotional state, right? It's physically impossible. It's morally, logically, empirically, rationally impossible for stealing to be universally preferable behavior. And, uh, you know, you can also say, if you have one rule for everyone else, but the opposite rule for you, you're going to be kind of alone. Like, you're going to feel lonely because you've just created a little universe just of you. And you could say, if you, <laughs> would you want to design a world where everybody was subject to gravity, but you went flying off into space? Like, gravity was the opposite for you? I mean, I get you, it'd be kind of fun for the first 20 seconds, but then you'd be in space and be pretty horrible and then you know even if you could survive up there you couldn't come back down to earth and you're just spiraling off into nothing while everyone else was living their lives and having fun don't create an opposite rule for yourself it makes you alone makes you isolated lonely so my point with all of this is if you have particular moral instruction that you're aiming at say a three-year-old then you should be able to explain to the three-year-old why they should follow these moral rules Right Then it's not just, well, I'm not going to steal because daddy's going to get mad. I'm not going to steal because I'm going to get punished. I'm not going to steal because I'm going to get caught. I'm not going to steal because people would disapprove of me. I'm not going to steal because, because, because. Because all that does is create a world wherein you'll steal until you won't say, because all that will do is create a world in which your child won't steal until, until when? Until when, we all know. We've all done it, right? You will steal when you can get away with it. When you can not be seen when you can dodge the eye, dodge the watcher. And this is why, of course, in Christianity and, of course, in many religions, uh, thou shalt not steal. Well, the all-seeing eye of God is constantly watching you. Therefore, you can't get away with anything. And this is why God and the conscience are one of the same in terms of the effects on our behavior. Your conscience is always watching. So God always watches. You can never get away with stealing you will always be punished for stealing. It's a sin. You will go to purgatory or limbo or hell or be further from God. If you externalize morality to, well, I'll steal if I won't get caught. I'll steal if I can't get caught. Well, then all that happens is people stop believing in God and steal whatever they want, whenever they want, because they won't get caught. And then the people who want to steal... Uh, take over law enforcement and then punish the innocent and reward the guilty, you know, all the usual stuff that we've seen throughout history. And the fact that this was secular and anti-Christian, what did that mean? Anti-conscience, anti-all-seeing eye that records every moral and immoral thing you do. De-Christianization was de-consciencing. The fantasy that without God, all is permitted. Without God, if you can get away with murder, that's fine. No one is watching. No one is judging. You don't have to pay any more attention to morals 
than the kids in junior high when some boring film was put on and the first thing they ask is, is this going to be on the test? And if it's not going to be on the test, they just doodle and pass notes and play X's and O's or whatever they're doing. Just don't pay any attention. There's no consequences, right? Thou shalt not kill. We've de-Christianized, therefore. Thou shalt not kill no longer applies, therefore we can kill. And this is the effects of raising children through punishment, is if they can remove the God that punishes evil, at least within their own minds, if they can remove that God that punishes evil, there's no such thing as evil. It's just the will to power. You can lie, you can cheat, you can betray, you can kill, you can falsify, you can defraud, you can just make up whatever nonsense you want to get what you want. The stopper on the restraint of human evil is removed. And now, there's no such thing as good and evil, but the de-Christianization is the belief, since morality is united with God, that if you get rid of God, you get rid of morality. If you get rid of God, you get rid of the conscience. If you get rid of God, you get rid of punishment. Which is why patricide and matricide and turning against the family are so common in these kinds of revolutions. Because the conscience is punitively inflicted. It is perceived by the fists and whippings and beatings and confinements and disapprovals of the mother and the father. So if you cast off all history, you destroy the nuclear family, you destroy punishment for immorality. This is why leftists, what do they aim at? What do these revolutionaries aim at? They aim at God and the family. No God, no nuclear family. Why? Because they wish to escape morality. And how is morality enforced? Through the edicts of God and the punishments of hell, and through the flurry of fists of the fathers, or the beatings of the mothers. If father never beats me for being bad, I don't have to have a conscience. If there's no God, I can't be caught, so I can do what I want. It's a fantasy that getting rid of the human institutions gets rid of the universals they represent. It is, of course, as mad as saying that if we get rid of all the physics teachers and all the physics departments, that we will be no longer subject to the laws of physics. Mad. And utterly mad. If we get rid of all of the biologists, we are no longer subject to any courses or laws of biology. But get rid of all the biologists, man. We won't need to eat anymore. We'll just live on the slow chug of self-righteousness. Our fuel will be virtue signaling. If we kill all the math teachers, there will be no such thing as numbers. There will be no such thing as similar entities with space between them. It's crazy, right? We understand? So, when I taught my daughter morality, I'm just informing her what is. I'm not subjecting her to my will. Because she can turn and say, why? Right? Famous line from Terminator 2. You can't just go around killing people. Why? Because it's wrong. Why? It just is. He gets frustrated and aggressive. Bob must obey Doug. Doug has no good reasons. It's personal. Okay. Is that universal? Then why is it so wrong for Doug to obey Bob? Bob to obey Doug. Reverse it. And suddenly it's evil. I mean, I remember when I fought back against my violent mother. How dare you? <laughs> this is terrible. You should never use violence. I mean, so don't mean to laugh so long ago now. Like 40, 40 plus years. But why can't it be reversed? Now, 
Of course, I understand this. You say, well, but as the parent, uh, you're older, you're wiser, you're more experienced, and so the children should do what you say, and maybe later on there'll be good reasons. Well, can you reasonably punish a five-year-old for not doing vector calculus, for not doing advanced algebra? Of course not. Asking children to be moral in the absence of being able to explain morality is utterly unjust. You understand, that's tyrannical in its essence, which is to say that you are subject to laws that are not explained ahead of time, that can't be explained, but you're still subject to them and will be punished if you fail to obey the laws that have never been defined, let alone explained. If it's too early to explain morality to your children, it's too early to hold them to moral standards, because otherwise all you're teaching them is obedience to individuals. And dear God above... Have we not had enough of the hellish effects of teaching children to obey violence, size, scope, strength, bitter resolution, and power? Have we not had enough of this yet? How many times, how many times do we have to do this over and over and over and over again? When children can understand morality, then they're responsible for moral decisions, but before they can understand morality, you don't hold them accountable for moral decisions. Would you yell at a baby for failing to explain itself to you in polysyllabic Taiwanese? Of course not. That would be horribly unjust. Children raised to fear punishment will be driven either to be cringing slaves of the violent or the violent. Someone gets this sword. You either get the hilt edge or the blade edge, but this sword is never going away. Well, as long as parenting remains coercive and violent, it never is. When we get to the later stages, as we will now, appreciate your patience. It's very important, I think, for me, and hopefully for you, to get these backgrounds. Why did these things occur? They believed that without punishment, there is no morality. Now, they used moral terms, of course, the good of the collective, but it doesn't matter. They believed because God punishes, because God punishes, when you de-Christianize, you get rid of God's punishment, and therefore, you get rid of morality. I just killed a physicist. Now I can jump off a building. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh because it's really awful. But this is how crazy it is. 5th April, 1794. We'll get to this. Let's look at a little backdrop. The trial and death of Danton. Late 1793, reporter Camille Desmoulins introduced his new publication, Le Vieux Cordelier. In it, he stood up for Danton and cautioned against overstating the revolutionary movement. He criticized the de-Christianizers and in subsequent issues drew parallels between Robespierre and Julius Caesar. Dumoulin emphasized that the revolution should revert to the principles popularized around August 10, 1792. In the publication's fourth edition, this Le Vieux Cordelier, he championed the rights of the approximately 200,000 to 300,000 unarmed civilians imprisoned on suspicion of treason, counter-revolutionary activities, questions, issues, problems, opposition to random political violence. See, if you remember, there was, what, about a half a dozen people in the Bastille, the great prison, half a dozen people, eight, I can't remember, something like that. Now we've got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of poor, pitiful, half-starved, beaten gulag dwellers 
It's like reading Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, where the protagonist Raskolnikov murders an old lady, a pawnbroker, to liberate her money, to do good in the world. And he goes through a very complex dance with the chief of police, with the inspector, with the detective, the investigator, Porfiri. And you compare this civilized treatment of a murderer with Solzhenitsyn's description of what happened under communism when he wrote a letter from the front criticizing some aspect of the war. He was like, 10 years, citizen, 10 years, beaten, half starved to the point where they found half-rotted old fish and gnawed on them. How much worse things have become. In the spring of 1794, Robespierre shared his report on the principles of political morality. <laughs> political morality. Political morality. Excellent oxymoron. And he wrote, and I quote, If virtue is the spring of a popular government in times of peace, the spring of that government during revolution is virtue combined with terror. Virtue without which terror is destructive. Terror without which virtue is impotent. Terror is only justice, prompt, severe, and inflexible. It is then an emanation of virtue. It is less a distinct principle than a natural consequence of the general principle of democracy applied to the most pressing wants of the country. The government in a revolution is the despotism of liberty against tyranny. Look at that. Virtue combined with terror. How was Robespierre and all of his bloodthirsty psycho-revolutionaries, how was he raised as a boy, as a child, as a youth, as an infant, as a toddler, as a teenager? We must beat our children into virtue. Goodness is on the other side of torture and brutality. To be noble, you must be smashed. To raise up on the landscape of morality, you must first be broken and buried deep. Where would he get the idea? And why would everyone believe him? Virtue combined with terror. He says, virtue without which terror is destructive. Virtue without which terror is destructive. People want to beat their children. You know that, right? A lot of people want to beat their children. Now, they can't just beat their children because then they're bullies. No, no, no. What they have to do is they have to say, well, I regretfully have to assault my child because I want my child to be good. You know, if my child is running towards traffic, I have to grab him, pull him back. He may resist, but it's for his own good. He'll thank me. He'll thank me later. He'll thank me later. And they often do. And then when they thank, they repeat. The purpose is violence. The justification is pretend virtue. He says, virtue without which terror is destructive. Now, what that's saying is, well, I was beaten, by, uh, I was beaten as a child, but uh, uh, I, I was beaten because my parents wanted to be the good, wanted me to be good, and it was the only way to be good. It was the only way to become good was to be beaten. Children are born sinful. The original sin, man in his natural state, is evil and must be beaten and bled and hammered and bruised and half strangled into virtue. The original sin, of course, in Catholicism is the fall of Adam and Eve. Now, the original sin in collectivism is what? The original sin in collectivism, where the group is infinitely higher morally than the individual, the original sin in collectivism is selfishness. If you gain any good out of a moral action, it's no longer good. You must sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice yourself to others. 
course, the others never come to demand your sacrifices, only the leaders with their swords and gulags who come to demand your sacrifice. But you in your natural state, looking out for your own interests, caring more for your own children than strangers halfway across the country, wanting to eat your own food rather than give it away to others, wanting to live in your own house rather than share it with all the needy people across the world. And in the nuclear family, in the monogamous relationship, it's wanting a vicious, tyrannical, patriarchal, and probably downright empire-based imperialistic control over your wife's hoo-ha and your husband's uppy-downy. You monopolist, you selfish, selfish person looking to your own interests. Of course, you have to look after your own interests. <laughs> of course you do. Of course you do. It's impossible to put others before yourself. It can't be universalized. It can't be universalized. If everyone is putting others before themselves, then nobody is on the receiving end of sacrifice. Sacrifice is asymmetric. One person is doing the sacrificing, the other person is receiving it. Therefore, it can't be universalized. Therefore, self-sacrifice cannot be universally preferable behavior. It's like saying the only moral thing in medicine is for everyone to give everyone else a kidney. Well, if everyone's giving everyone else a kidney, nobody's on the receiving end of a kidney. It's just being passed along until it rots in the bucket. Virtue without which terror is destructive. Yep, your parents just abused you. They just pretended it was about virtue. Nope, it was just about the discharge of violence and sadism. And he says, terror without which virtue is impotent. Without which virtue is impotent. Virtue can achieve nothing without violence. Well, this is back to original sin and the costs of this kind of pedagogy. Right? Terror is only justice, prompt, severe, and inflexible. Right. So when he was a kid, he was beaten, probably starved, probably raped. Terror is only justice, prompt, severe, and inflexible. The only way to make people good is through violence. It comes from childhood. It is then an emanation of virtue. The government in a revolution is the despotism of liberty against tyranny. This is, I mean, it's a complete... Mobius strip, Escher diagram, brain warping nonsense, right? The government must be violent, prompt, severe, inflexible, and brutal. We have to throw hundreds of thousands of civilians into gulags because that's how we bring liberty against tyranny. <laughs> Madness. Madness. But really more just trauma. You beat kids. They get an army. They beat you back. Soon after this speech, spring of 1794, the government effectively resolved to detain Danton, de Milan, and several others, without allowing them an opportunity to present their case at the convention. Of course not. Of course not. Were the children allowed to present their case to the adults? When you were a kid, were you allowed to present your case to your adults, your parents, your teachers, your priests, whoever? They said you were bad. Did you say, no, 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 I thought this. I, my assumption was that, and I thought, right? Well, nope. So if you were never allowed to present your case to your authority figures as a child, when you become an authority figure as an adult, why on earth would you let someone present their case? Virtue is shut up and take your punishment. So there was an initial plea from the committee for Danton to speak up. Robespierre coldly intervened, saying, It would be violating the laws of impartiality to grant to Danton what was refused to others who had an equal right to make the same demand. Right. This is sibling stuff. You brutalize the elder sibling, you can't be nice to the younger sibling, and vice versa. Consistency in violence. No favoritism. 
Such a response, right? Can't give it to Danton, we refuse the others. Such a response immediately halted any further requests on Danton's behalf. Supporters of Danton remained silent, fearing that they might be seen as prioritizing personal ties over moral integrity and find their heads rolling with his. Danton and others were given a sham trial, with only seven of the twelve jurors required by law because they found only seven they could trust to give the required verdict. Now, Danton may have been a devil, probably was, almost certainly was, but he was also a great orator. He gave an impassioned self-defense that seemed to be swaying over the observing crowd. Saint-Just, Saint-Just, president of the convention at the time, rushed through a law forbidding defendants from speaking on their own behalf during the trial. Charges were fabricated. The prosecutor was threatened. The fabricated charges had almost no evidence. The prosecutor threatened the jury. And before the verdict was even delivered, all the defendants, nine of whom were, in fact, deputies of the convention, were removed from the court so the hair could be cut in preparation for the guillotine. Danton de Moulin and a group of 13 faced the fatal blade of the guillotine later that day. Danton, embracing the gravity of his fate, said to his executioners, Show the people my head, it is well worth seeing. Show the people my head, it's well worth seeing. On the other hand, when Hébert, who once criticized both Robespierre and Danton for their moderation, they're not violent enough, not brutal enough, he met. When he met the same fate, he was not quite so bold as his words had previously indicated. Overcome with terror, Hébert fainted repeatedly on his way to the guillotine. The executioners toyed with him, stopping the blade just shy of its deadly mark, providing a grim spectacle for the onlookers. Only on the fourth drop did Hébert find his end. Killing the physicist doesn't render you immune to physics. Advocating for violence doesn't render you immune from the effects of violence. It only ex extends and expands it. I mean, I was facing violence for speeches uh, ten years ago. I was giving speeches under bomb and death threats. People were fine with that. A lot of people were fine with that. A lot of people, very public people, were cheering that on. Oh no, now the principal is turning back to bite them. Well, okay, they could say they don't like the violence being used against them. I understand that. I didn't like it being used against me or threatened against me. But they can't say that they oppose violence on principle. They cheered it on, a lot of people, against people they disliked or people who threatened their interests or they disagreed with strongly. So now they have about as much credibility as a criminal who suddenly becomes meek and accommodating when he loses control of the gun. It's very sad. I don't know how many times we're going to have to learn this lesson. Certainly one more time, it seems, without a doubt, despite the best efforts of myself and countless others to try and make things more rational, more reasonable. Ah, well, maybe with current footage, current arguments, current podcasts, maybe this lesson will be learned well enough, finally that the violence you cheer on against your enemies will inevitably circle back to attack you. You loose a lion in the village. He's not going to be content only with chewing on those people you don't like. The lion just likes meat. And what are you made of? Meat. Certainly no integrity. By the torrid summer of 1794, a really grim, mind-squeezing tension filled the air. The populace as a whole, including of course, the politicians battled in a frenzy for control over the guillotine that it was going to be their enemies or them. 
the beast, the demon, the devil, the endless falling blades, had loosed themselves from all control, all restraint. And they, of course, denied any justice to their victims. And therefore, they knew deep down that the blade was coming for them. Anti-rationality is a death cult, just so you know, so you're clear. Anti-rationality is a death cult. It's a form of slow murderous suicide. All murderers want to die deep down. I mean, their parental voices tell them to kill others. They either kill others or they kill themselves. Anti-rationality is a death cult. It always goes the same way and everyone knows exactly how it goes. On June 10th, 1794, the Committee on Public Safety dispensed with the pretense, even the pretense of justice, unveiling the draconian 22 parallel, a day in their mad calendar, decree, suddenly mere accusations equated to guilt, eradicating the concept of any fair trial. Legal representation was abandoned in the mad stampede off the cliff down the shiny blade of the guillotine. Convictions now rested on moral proof. I feel it. I heard it. I saw it instead of actual evidence. And every offense, regardless of its nature, bore a singular morbid penalty, that of death. The accusation is the conviction. Believe all accusations. If someone hates you enough, boy, you must have done something wrong. The accusation is the proof. The accusation is the proof. Believe all women. Okay, well, men will stop approaching women. Women will be single. Money runs out. Then what happens? With a chilling kind of glee, the prosecutor, Georges Couthon, saw this legal abomination as a tool, tallying up the countless executions as if they were mere trivialities. I can only ever unleash this demon of violence, and it will only and forever be under my control, and only and forever will it take down only and forever my enemies. It's a bladed boomerang that everyone throws, and it comes back. Georges Couthon, of course, after murdering countless others in the pretense of a trial, he too would eventually taste the guillotine's cold kiss, following the sinister decree of 22 parallel. 1,500 souls met their end within just two months, and the revolution's ferocity expanded its reach from the aristocrats to the hapless peasantry. Don't worry! Give us all the power in the world, and we'll only aggress against your enemies. We will be your slaves, and only take out the bad guys. Never the good guys. Break principle. Control violence. You own your blood-soaked masters. You program us, we'll just do all of the good stuff, never any of the bad stuff. This is a satanic offer, right? And how many times do people take it? I don't care what the social problem is. I don't care what the economic problem is. I don't care what the problem is between the sexes, the races, the classes, the countries. The solution, the only solution, is always less violence. Ideally, no violence. The solution is always less violence. The state is unjust. Let us give the state more power. Oh, yeah, that's going to work out beautifully. It is, again, people do enough evil they don't want to live, but they have very elaborate ways of killing themselves, some of which involve these kinds of brutal revolutions. In early July 1794, Robespierre 
fervently, ferociously defended himself against accusations of tyranny in a marathon speech and simultaneously warned of plots against the Committee of Public Safety. How dare you accuse me of being a tyrant? Oh, you're all plotting against me and should be killed. <laughs> My God. <sighs> but in subsequent decisions, Robespierre, including ousting the likes of Fouché, his subsequent decisions only tightened the noose of suspicion around him. Confidential committee gatherings whispered of the looming danger Robespierre presented, even speculating that Saint-Just, Saint-Just, sought to replace him with an even heavier hand, realizing the noose might tighten around their own necks. The committee gatherings, the men whispering fearfully of the cycle of violence, set a plot into motion. In one meeting, there were nearly 35 representatives opposed to Robespierre, the majority hailing from the mountain faction. As the claims and whispers and accusations against him mounted, Saint-Just chose to remain silent. In a desperate move, seeing which way the mob was now turning like a flock of birds under charging falcons, in a desperate move, Robespierre approached the podium, seeking support from others against the Montagnards. However, he was drowned out by loud voices. He then quickly went to the left benches, but was rejected there as well. Amidst Robespierre's evident distress and momentary loss of speech, a man said, The blood of Danton chokes him! To which Robespierre responded, Is it Danton you regret? Cowards, why didn't you defend him? <laughs> and the devil returns to the seat of power in France to collect the soul sated with blood that he offered power to, who now is powerless. The climax of the reign of terror was nigh. Its chief architects, including Robespierre and Saint-Just, were cornered. In a fumbled suicide attempt, Robespierre only succeeded in maiming his own jaw. His grim fate was sealed on July 28, 1794, when he, alongside his cohorts, faced, at last, the guillotine. As the blood pumped out of his neck and his head fell into the basket, the crowd's scorn for him mirrored that once reserved for loathed kings. Do you remember you throw a couple of hundred thousand people into jail? Well, they have brothers and aunts and uncles and wives and sons. For every person you imprison, you make 20 enemies, 30 enemies, 40 enemies. Millions of people wanted him dead. Robespierre faced sheer brutality in his final moments. They tore off the bandage around his wounded jaw, screaming as he was jammed into the neckerchief of the guillotine. His demise was met with a cacophony of cheers, sealing the dark chapter of the reign of terror, the Jacobin Club, and the purported French Republique. Of course, the revolution's long, haunting shadow persisted, sowing discord from Europe to Asia, even South America. This was the seminal point in the end of the reign of terror and the French Revolution. In the coming months and years, there was more backstabbing and bloodshed and more heads would roll. Soon, a new constitution would be drafted, Napoleon would take power, and for all the bloodshed and terror and violence over ending the life of the king and of Marie Antoinette and of the nobles, the monarchy too would eventually be reinstated. <laughs> 